How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everybody can make sure that you're uh, in fellowship. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to study your word. We're thankful for all of the many blessings that you have given us in, in Christ. We're thankful that we can be here to study your word, be refreshed, encouraged, and strengthened spiritually as we come to understand all that you have done for us and all that you have provided for us. Father, we're especially mindful tonight as we pray to bring before you those in the congregation that are facing uh, various challenges medically. There are two or three people, such as Jim Burney, and we continue to bring them before your throne of grace and pray that you would strengthen him physically and also provide a kidney for him. And, Father, we continue to pray for Jim Myers, for their ministry in Ukraine, for uh, opening the door so that they can get a permanent resident visa and just resolving all of the other challenges that they're facing uh, this fall. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we might be able to focus on uh, your word and think clearly and precisely about what you have revealed to us, that we may understand your word, that we may understand better our salvation and the responsibilities that we have as believers in light of our wonderful position in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 4, starting in Romans chapter 4 tonight which is one of the great chapters in the Scripture dealing with justification. We've been on this trajectory since, the, uh, since chapter 3, once we got into the uh, 21st verse. We really get into the centerpiece of Paul's discussion of justification. And the question is, how can a human being be just before the Supreme Court of Heaven? Standing before the court of God's justice, how can we ever claim that we are righteous? Not righteous in a sense that is the result of comparing our uh, our behavior, our actions, our ethics with other people that we know. For we know that in many cases, when human beings compare with other human beings, we can always find enough human beings to make us look good. Unless you're way down on the totem pole somewhere, there's always a lot of people that you can figure out that that are beneath you. But the standard isn't a relative standard. The standard is an absolute standard related to the character of God. And so Paul has gone through in a meticulous and logical manner in chapters 1, 2, and 3 in showing that no human being, no matter how good they are, no matter how much they observe ritual, can ever measure up to the standard that God sets. And this is one of the hardest things to communicate to a lot of people. 
for a couple of different reasons. One is because the basic orientation of the human soul that we know from Scripture is arrogance. We believe in our own self-sufficiency that somehow we can do it. And so there is, from the sin nature, this this sense of self-confidence, misplaced self-confidence, that we can somehow do enough, follow enough standards, be um, good enough or follow certain rituals, and we'll merit God's favor. And this shows up in almost all religions except for biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity stands over against every other world religion in that the emphasis is on the fact that man cannot do it on, on his own, that only God can do it for us. And it's in these chapters in Romans that Paul meticulously and logically lays out all of these all of these steps. Now, as we came to the end of Romans chapter three last time, I want to just summarize the last part of what what Paul says there in verses twenty seven and twenty eight. Paul. Paul as he builds to his conclusion, says, well, where is boasting then? It's obvious from what he has said, it's left out. There's nothing that we can point to in our own lives as having brought righteousness to us. So boasting is excluded. And he says, by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, I pointed out when I hit this verse last time that it is uh, an important observation here to see that there's a contrast here made between a law of works and a law of faith. Normally we contrast works with grace, but here the contrast is between works and faith because the issue in justification is, which is how we become, uh, how we're declared righteous before God, The issue in justification is, are we justified by works or are we justified by faith? And when we say justified by faith, we don't just mean having faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody has faith in something. It's the object of faith that is important. That's what makes the difference between a person who is going to heaven based on the New Testament and someone who is not. Because if you put the focus of your faith on the works of Jesus Christ as opposed to our works, then we get into heaven on the basis of him, not on the basis of what we do. So the contrast here is between works and faith, defined, and he speaks of it here as the law of faith and the law of works. Therefore, he says in verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So the focus here is on the works of the law. And as I've shown, this phrase, the works of the law, doesn't just mean the ritual of the Mosaic law, but it describes the entirety of the 613 commandments in the Mosaic law, both the civil commandments and the, and the uh, spiritual or ritual commandments. And the point being that no one... Not one person can fulfill all of those commandments and keep them all the, the entirety of their life. And as the Apostle Paul came to realize in his testimony, is that when he came to the tenth and last of the Ten Commandments, that thou shalt not covet. 
that this related to a mental attitude sin that he knew he was guilty. He coveted being righteous. He coveted being uh, more successful and exceeding all of his uh, peers in their pursuit of righteousness. He coveted that position, and he knew that, that he could not overcome that. So that was what convicted him, made him realize that he could never live up to the law, no one could live up to the law, and that the point of the law was not to show how to get righteousness, but that it is impossible for man to be perfectly righteous, therefore God has to supply the answer. So these two verses state the principle that righteousness is through faith, not through the works of the law. And then in verses 29 and 30, we see that justification by faith is a principle that applies to all people. God doesn't have one standard of salvation for the Jews based on the law, based on circumcision, based on uh, following the uh, ritual of the Mosaic law, and another standard for Gentiles. But he, Paul has demonstrated that even though the Jewish people were blessed by having the scriptures, by having the promises, by having the covenants, and that this put them in a position of temporal blessing, that is, blessing on this earth, it did not get them any closer to God in terms of eternal life. It, none of these these um, thing, benefits, these blessings that they had, solved the basic problem that man had, which is spiritual death. So the principle in verses 29 and 30 is that, God, that justification applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. And then in his conclusion, he says, Do we not then make void the law through faith. So the question he's anticipating is that if it's based on faith, then that would lead to what is called antinomianism, or that we don't need the law and we can just live whatever way we wish because if the law doesn't get us into heaven and, and, it's by, and we're saved by grace through faith, then what does it matter how we behave? This is one of the great objections that is passed down from generation to generation as, as an assault against Christianity. This is what happened in the mid-17th century following the initial understanding of salvation and justification by faith alone by Martin Luther and by John Calvin. Martin Luther came to an understanding of justification by faith alone, not... Next next week we'll be having, uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll be having the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation on October the 31st, 1517. Martin Luther nailed 91 theses onto the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany, which was used to be in East Germany. And uh, uh, when he did that, these were, these were disputation points. These were debating points, and he wanted a public debate in the Catholic Church. He was still a Catholic monk, monk at that time over these 95 different points. And uh, the essence of this was caused by the fact that, that um, a man named Johannes Tetzel had been uh, sent out by the Vatican to raise money to build St. Peter's in Rome. And so they, they did this through selling indulgences that people could pay money and buy an indulgence, and that was sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. 
in terms of uh, purgatory, not jail, but get out of purgatory free card for any ancestors or parents that they had. And so um, Tetzel sort of had a little ditty that he sang for every penny in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he went around Germany taking all kinds of money from the poor people. And Luther was just incensed about this. And he had gradually come to an understanding by 1517 that that God saved apart from the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't crystal clear yet on justification by faith alone. His number two man that he influenced was Philip Melanchthon, who had one of those uh, rare, brilliant theological minds. And Melanchthon, between 1517, 1518, somewhere in that period, was the one who very clearly brought Luther to an underst- a, a true grace understanding of justification, that it did not matter what a person did before or after salvation that justification was dependent on faith in Jesus Christ alone, period. He, he understood that separation between justification and experiential uh, righteousness, which is part of Christian growth that comes after salvation if a person is studying the Word, applying the Word, and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. In his early years... John Calvin, who doesn't come to his own understanding of justification by faith alone until the 1520s, that by the late 1520s, he wrote his first edition of his uh, Christian Institutes, or Institutes of the Christian Religion, which was dedicated to uh, King Francis of, uh, of France. And he, in his first edition, which was very small, it was only... 40 or 50 pages. It's not the large two-volume work that most people think of today. It was very small. And in there, he clearly at that time understood that justification was not based on what a person does or what a person will do, but is based solely and exclusively on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And through the first several editions of his Institutes of the Christian Religion, He clearly understood grace, but by the time you get into the late 1530s and into the 1540s, there started to be uh, uh, the rise of the pushback from the Roman Catholic Church that later came to be known as the Counter-Reformation. And in the Counter-Reformation, their charge that the Roman Catholic Church brought against the Protestants was that, you know, how can we keep the masses under control if... Jesus saved them by grace, and they don't have to be moral, and they don't have to be obedient. Uh, The accusation was that this grace doctrine that the Protestants were teaching was just an open door to rank sinfulness. If Jesus is all all you need to do is believe in Jesus, then why be moral? Why be good? And so the accusation was that this would just open the door uh, to uh, rank immorality. Now, this is a question that Paul will address when he comes to the beginning of Roman chapter, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where he asks the rhetorical question, well, if all this is true that I've said, what shall we say then? Shall we sin more so that grace can abound? And he says, well, absolutely not. 
But the first point that we have to understand is this issue related to uh, justification and that it is by faith alone. And so he raises this question here, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, do we really, if, if, we, if all we need to do is believe God then, and we don't need to do anything, we don't need to obey him, then it just invalidates the law altogether. And again, he says in Greek, it's the phrase megnoita, which is a very strong negation. May it never be, sometimes translated certainly not. And he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. It is, he's saying the law has a role. It's not for justification, but he will show that it is to lead a person to the need to depend upon God. And so he says that the law of faith actually fulfills the mandate of the law of Moses through imputation. Now, the way that re, what, it, what he's saying is that the law of faith is what establishes the Mosaic law. When we believe in, in the promise of God in the Old Testament of salvation, or now we believe in Jesus, then at that instant, God imputes to us or credits to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what the Mosaic Law is really pointing to is the fact that no one can have a relationship with God, no one can get into heaven unless they possess that perfect righteousness of God. So the law of faith is the only way to have the perfect righteousness of God, and therefore the law of faith establishes the law because it shows that what the law is, it fulfills what the law could not fulfill, which is the bringing of righteousness. Now, the background to all of this is understanding the basics of the essence of God as it relates to God's righteousness. And so we have the attributes of God, his sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, his veracity, meaning he is absolute truth, and his immutability, which means he does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Scripture emphasizes and often brings together four of these attributes, his righteousness and his justice. These words in English are translations of the same word in Hebrew and the same word in Greek. In Hebrew, it's uh, tzedek, and in Greek, it's dikaios. Dikaios can refer to either righteousness or it can refer to justice. But it's also connected with love. Now, what we often hear from people is an objection that's been uttered probably since the fall of Lucifer is how can a loving God condemn his creatures? Because in the mind of the creature, love and condemnation are irreconcilable. And what I was pointing out last time is that a love that is not righteous and a righteousness that is not loving cannot exist in an eternal sense. You cannot have real love without righteousness, and you cannot have real righteousness without genuine love. And so these always go together, and they are inherently compatible. And a love that is not right based on righteousness and those absolutes is a shallow, superficial love that does not uh, stand the test of time. 
And then the fourth attribute that is connected is the attribute of God's veracity or his truth. So those four together make up the integrity of God, and they're connected together in such verses as Psalm 89:14. Now, Psalm 89, for those of you who've gone through several studies with me, is a psalm that is a meditation on God's covenant with David. And so there is also a messianic aspect to Psalm 89, anticipating the coming of the greater son of David, which is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that when his kingdom is established, it will exhibit these attributes. And so Psalm, 109, I mean Psalm 89, 14 states, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, anticipating the messianic throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Mercy and truth are the expressions towards creatures of God's core character of righteousness and justice. Now, the word that you see up there on the screen, tzedakah, is the word that is translated for both righteousness and justice. Righteousness, when the word has a sense where it's describing the absolute, an absolute standard of God's character, then it has the idea of righteousness. It's speak, that N-E-S-S ending in English tells us that it's representing a quality of something. Uh, the Greek uh, correlation to that is the uh, suffix sune on the word dikaios for justice or righteousness, dikaios sune. It's that quality of righteousness. Justice is the application of that standard to God's creatures. Another verse that is similar, mentioning righteousness and justice together, is Psalm 97.2, speaking again of the throne of God, speaking of his uh, position from which he brings judgment. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So again and again through Scripture, we need to ask the question, why do we continue to have this emphasis from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament on the righteousness of God. Now, you see, the, the, the mentality that approaches Scripture from a critical or skeptical viewpoint wants to draw a dichotomy between this God of the Old Testament, that evil, wicked Jehovah who always wants to condemn people, and the loving, kind, uh, paternal God of the New Testament. But what we find is that they go together. There's not a conflict. There's not a contradiction between the two because righteousness and justice are expressed through the love of God. So the Old Testament often emphasizes the righteousness and justice of God because it is, it is communicating that there is a standard that God has in his dealings with mankind and that man fails to meet that standard. Psalm 33.5 says that God loves righteousness and justice. He can only love righteousness and justice. God, God as a righteous God can, has no compatibility, no affinity for, no affection for that which is unrighteous. Something has to change, and since the unrighteous creature cannot change himself, 
it seems like the only solution is for God to be the one to provide the solution. So we have to remember these three aspects or uh, descriptions of righteousness, justice, and love. Righteousness is the standard of God's own character. He is righteous. That doesn't mean he meets an external standard. We're not talking about some sort of platonic idealism where there's some free-floating standard of, 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 of perfect perfection out there, and God is a creature who meets it. In Greek thought, there was something called a chain of being, and this would start with the lowest amoeba, and you would go up the chain of being to God. But it's all part of the same chain. The only difference between man, who's pretty far up the chain, and then there are angels, and then there's God, is just a degree of difference. There's not a qualitative difference. In Scripture, God is not in this chain of being. He is the creator. He is completely set apart and distinct from his, uh, from his creation so that God's character defines righteousness. We don't sit back here. This is what a lot of, you'll find a lot of people do. They'll say, well, that doesn't sound like that's really fair. See, they've created an autonomous concept of fairness, this ideal, and then they want God to meet their standard of what they think fairness is. But the question that we should ask is, well, how, do we, how does a creature know enough facts to be able to establish a stand, an equitable standard of fairness? Since God is omniscient and knows all the facts, all the hidden motivations, all the complexity of motivations that creatures have, only God can truly judge because he's the only one who knows all the facts and he's the only one who is inherently righteous. So righteousness is that standard of his own character. Justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. Love, then, is an expression of his righteousness and justice toward his creatures, and it's not based on on their merit. It's based upon his own, his own character. John 3.16, God loved the world in this manner, not for God so loved the world, which in English indicates that God loved the world so much. That's not what it's saying. The Greek word that begins the verse, hutos, means in such a way or in this manner. So, what John is saying in John 3.16 is this is how God loves the world. He gave his only begotten or unique son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life so that his love expresses his, is an expression of his righteousness and justice in solving the problem that, man, that mankind has. So some new principles. A lot of that was review. Some new principles. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God then executes through the love of God and expressed through his grace. As I pointed out last time, everything that God does is part of his love. Thinking that through is crucial to be, for being a parent or being in any kind of relationship. But We'll focus on the parental aspect. Ever since uh, Benjamin Spock came along with his human viewpoint advice on how to raise children back in the early 50s, uh, it gave guidelines to 
a, a whole generation of parents on how to destroy the character of your children because it didn't te- it, it destroyed the whole concept of parental training which includes discipline negative punishment as well as positive uh, positive motivation so that love has to punish as well as to bless. That's what instills a sense of responsibility in a child so that they can learn that there are things that they have to discipline themselves not to do because there are negative consequences in their own life and in the lives of others. It's not all about them. It's about others. This is part of the reason that in Christianity there's also an emphasis on service within the body of Christ because it's not all about us. And over the years, I've heard a lot of different Christians in a lot of different churches talk about their Christian life, their spiritual life, in a very narcissistic manner. It's all about me. I just want to go to church where I can learn so I can be a better Christian. Well, it's in, in a sense, that's true. But, but part of the Christian life is to learn that it's not about you and your spiritual life. That's a means to an end. And the end is serving within the body of Christ because, as Paul describes using the metaphor of the body in 1 Corinthians 12, we are members of one another. And that's a concept that really rubs against American self-sufficiency and individualism, which tends to atomize the Christian body into every individual part, and we're all pursuing the same thing together rather than emphasizing the the mutuality that is part of that Christian ministry. Part of the reason we have so many passages that talk about admonishing one another, praying for one another, loving one another, teaching one another, encouraging one another, all of this is, is part of the body, uh, the body of Christ. Second principle is, that what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God will provide for through the grace of God. The justice of God provides through the grace of God, namely the fullness of blessing of God as an expression of love to the one who believes. God gives us, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. It's a free gift. It's not something we have to earn. It's not something you don't have to go through uh, ten different stages of of growth each time you get a little something else. This often happens in uh, especially esoteric religions, the mystery religions, uh, Mormonism, uh, some other modern expressions. You go through sort of an initiate phase, and then you swear an oath that uh, you won't ever divulge whatever it is you're going to learn at the next stage. And then you go through the next stage. And if you're deemed worthy and you're not expressing skepticism and doubt, then you swear another oath and you go to the next stage and you get closer and closer until you get to the secret truth and you're in the inner circle. That goes back to Gnosticism during the time of the uh, of the early church, and it's also manifests itself in all kinds of different uh, uh, New Age religions, Mormonism, various other uh, mind cults, things of that nature. So here, God gives us everything at the beginning. Third, what the righteousness of God condemns, 
the justice of God judges, but it's always within the framework of divine love. It's never apart from love. Love and justice are not incompatible, but in the biblical teaching, they must always go together. God can only love what is consistent with his righteousness, and when it's not consistent with his righteousness, love in a, in a, in a more intimate sense, then in love he also has to reject. That's part of love. That's just a tough concept for people to get. This is one reason you have two different words for love in Scripture. You have God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what did he do in love? He judged the second person of the Trinity for our sins. You can't separate judgment from love. The word that's used there in John 3.16 is the Greek word agape. There's another word that's used in Greek in the New Testament for love, and, and that's the word, uh, the, the um, verb is phileo, and the noun is phile, philos. And it has to do with a more intimate affection. God only has, when the word philos is, phileo is used, the verb phileo is used, the object is always Christians. God never has a phileo type love, which is a more intimate uh, love for, he never has that for unbelievers, only agape love. But that's the, the, um, the, the distinction there. So love is always involved in whatever God is doing challenge it. What I'm trying to do here is challenge your understanding of love a little bit so it's a little more uh, biblical. So judgment and blessing are both expressions of God's integrity, the totality of his integrity, justice, righteousness, love, and truth. Okay, all of that basic review brings us up to an understanding of righteousness, justice, why all of this is stressed in Romans. So then Paul moves us to the next level in his in his development and, and uh, argument for, for justification. He's going to bring in two illustrations from the Old Testament, one related to uh, Abraham, the other related to David. The question here is that he is answering is from a Jewish objection, then how then can you demonstrate that justification is by faith. Where do you get this idea? Is this something that Paul dreamed up? No, it's not. Paul is going to go to an episode in, in the life of Abraham and an episode in the life of David in order to show from these Old Testament episodes that justification by faith alone has always been the principle in God's dealing with mankind that in the Old Testament, saints were justified by faith alone, and in the New Testament, saints are justified by faith alone. So he says in 4.1, What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to his, the flesh? And what he means by according to the flesh is simply in his material uh, existence. When he was on the earth... What what did he find? What was how did he, how was he saved? How was he justified? And he approaches this by giving us the alternatives. There's only two options: either he's justified by works before God, or he is not. One or the other. So in verse two, he says he states the one alternative. For if Abraham was 
justified or declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, the if clause here in the Greek is a first-class condition, which means Paul is assuming the truth of this first phrase, if Abraham was justified by works. This would be more of a debater's use of a first-class condition. For the sake of argument, we're going to assume that Abraham was justified by works. That's all he's saying. He's not saying the first-class Many people get confused on the first-class condition thinking that it means if and it's true. It's really if and it is assumed to be true. It may or may not be true. In some cases, it is true. In other cases, like this, it's simply an assumption of truth for the basis of the argument. So if Abraham, he's saying if, we'll assume it was true that Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of works. Then the conclusion, well, he does have something to boast about. He was good enough, but he can't boast before God because what we've just uh, demonstrated earlier is that boasting is excluded. Verse uh, chapter three, verse twenty-seven. We can't boast on our own efforts. The boasting itself would negate the the righteousness. So he says that there is. He implies here that there is a justification, but it's not before God. It is before man. We have lived a good life. There's nothing wrong with living a good moral life, but it's not going to gain entry into heaven. That's the issue that we're talking about. The word that's used here that's translated justified is the Greek verb dikaiao, which means to pronounce someone righteous or just. It's not making them just. And a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago when we studied this, I um, brought a cup up here and I poured water into the cup as an illustration of the Roman Catholic view of justification, that something is made righteous. They use the term infused or imparted righteousness. And if that were true, that would mean that, that the sin nature is somehow changed when you get saved so that you're may actually made moral. The deficit of the sin nature is changed. So that now you're you're a good per- you become a good person, and in Roman Catholic theology that happens incrementally every time you participate in the in a sacrament, and if, and each time you get a little bit more of the merit of Jesus Christ called the treasury of merit, and you get you know a little bit more each time, and each time that sort of takes away a little bit of the of the sin nature. And you have something that really is comparable to that within lordship, salvation. Because, and this is where it gets into a little complex theology, but in strict high Calvinism, where they emphasize total inability, you often have the, the idea of regeneration as not being that something positive is born or is now uh, created within the immaterial part of man or added to the immaterial part of man, uh, what we refer to as his human spirit that is part of his n- new nature as a, as a believer in Christ. But that regeneration is 
is really, it, it changes and minimizes the, the sinfulness of the sin nature. And years ago, now, 12, 13 years ago, I read an interesting article in, um, in fact, it was referred to several times by different speakers at the uh, pastor's conference last March in dealing with understanding what uh, Lisbeth Chafer was saying on the spiritual life and the distinction between the spiritual life and spiritual growth and, and being um, in spiritual death and justification, how all these things go together. And a classmate of mine from when I was uh, in the uh, doctoral program at Dallas Seminary wrote an article. He teach, I forget where he's teaching. I think he's teaching at, the, uh, at a seminary in Jordan, uh, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Um, but he wrote an article dealing with this debate that went on between Lewis Berry Chafer and Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Warfield was the dean of theologians in the Presbyterian community in the early 20th century. He was at, taught at Princeton, and uh, he he was the considered the greatest living American theologian at the time. And Lewis Berry Chafer is very complimentary of Warfield in many many ways. But when Lewis Berry Chafer wrote his book, He That Is Spiritual, Warfield just blasted him in a book review that was pr- published in the uh, Princeton uh, Theological Journal, Theological Review, I forget the exact name of it. And that has been a basis for, under, for battle for, for years in theological debate and discussion. And as uh, uh, this Ran- Randy, Randy Gleason wrote this article, he, he said something near, in his conclusion that just always struck me. He said, the problem that Chafer had was that he had a low view of regeneration. He didn't understand that regeneration minimizes and reduces the sinfulness of the sin nature. And it was like light bulbs went off in my head. Because nobody ever really came out and said that before, that within Reformed theology, which is Calvinistic theology, their view of regeneration isn't the positive birth of something new, the new nature that's given to a believer in Jesus Christ, but that it is the minimalization of the sin nature. This is why in pure lordship theology, if you're really a believer, you won't commit certain sins because your sin nature isn't as bad as it was before you were saved. And Chafer believed that your sin nature after you're saved is just as bad and evil as it was before you were saved, that you're not made righteous, you are declared righteous. This is why... We call it forensic justification. Now, we're really getting into some heavy theological terms tonight. In the the 16th century, 17th century, in England, people died weekly as to whether or not they understood the difference between forensic justification and infused righteousness. That was when people thought that ideas really mattered and theology really mattered, and what you believed about God really mattered. Now, I'm not saying that justifying the fact that they were burning uh, people at the stake for what, in England, you'd have a, uh, after Henry VIII died, then his son Edward was a Protestant. He reigned for a couple of years, then he died, and then Bloody Mary came in for a few years, and then she died, and then Elizabeth came in. So, you know, one, one month you're on the good side, the next month you're on the bad side, so you really had to be, uh, be careful during that time, but the point I'm making is that 
these kinds of theological ideas and distinctions that I'm making tonight uh, to a 21st century Christian seems like hair splitting and it's irrelevant. Let's just go out and get people saved and do something good for the kingdom. And that just that that just negates the the witness and the martyrdom of of thousands of Christians over several centuries as they were dying for the truth. And now we don't care about the truth. And we don't want to think so precisely about understanding basic concepts like justification and what that means and what it doesn't mean. So the idea of justification isn't that someone is made righteous, but they are declared righteous by God from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now, the problem is, how is a person going to do enough to be declared righteous by God, especially when you have Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 64, 6, that says that all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Same word, a Hebrew word, tzedakah, all of our righteous deeds, not all of our unrighteous needs, not all of our failures, not all of our sins, but all of our righteous deeds. In other words, the best that we can do is never going to be good enough because the best that we can do is still a filthy, soiled garment that doesn't measure up. So then the next key word in, in Romans 4.3 is that Abraham, uh, as we go to the next verse, rather, for what uh, Paul then says, for what does the Scripture say? We're going to go back to our illustration of the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, this is the first clear statement of this idea in the Old Testament. But it's clear from Scripture that Noah had to be declared righteous. Adam had to be declared righteous. They were all sinners. Just because you don't have a statement, a, a, a clear statement of imputation of righteousness until Abraham does not mean Abraham is the first true believer. I've read some comments to that effect. Uh, this, this is the first time God really, in, in the revelation of Scripture, begins to give us detailed analysis of some of these things. The word covenant isn't used in Genesis until uh, Genesis chapter 6 or Genesis chapter 9. So, but that doesn't mean that, that what is expressed in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 isn't a covenant. Just because it's not called a covenant, it has all the elements of a covenant, so it's a covenant. Hosea refers to it as a covenant. So um, I think today we have theologians who say, well, if the word imputation or righteousness isn't there, our belief isn't there until Genesis 12, then you never had it before. I think that is begging the question. So Scripture says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This is the Greek word logizomai, based on the noun logos for word or logic. So the, uh, this word comes over into English in various forms. Uh, in the study of something like biology, zoology, that L-O-G comes from the Greek word logos, and the verb legizomai means to think about something. It means to, it's a accounting term, meaning to credit something to someone's account. 
which is different from actually putting something into someone's account. And I've used the illustration of a, uh, a co-signing on a loan. And then the third key word here is righteousness, that it was accounted to him as righteousness, and that's dikaios in the Greek and uh, tzedakah in the Hebrew. Now, I went through this several weeks ago as we got, first got into this study, that the basic definition of imputation is an accounting term. It's a mathematical concept where something is credited to someone's account. It doesn't mean that necessarily that something is actually put into that account. For example, I, uh, that I used is of co-signing on a loan, that if I do not have the financial capability to buy a house, Someone else can co-sign on it. Their money doesn't have to go into my account, but the bank will look at their credit as opposed to my credit, look at what's in their account as opposed to what's in my account, and on the basis of what they have in their account, then I can be approved for the loan. Because in essence, what's happening is they're being approved for the loan. So the Hebrew, the Greek word is logizomai. The Hebrew word is kashav which has fundamentally the same meaning, to think, to plan, to make a judgment, to count, compute, calculate. All these are are words related to thinking and to reasoning something out. In English, the word impute has the same idea. From the Oxford English Dictionary, the second meaning states that in theology it means to ascribe righteousness or guilt Uh, to someone by virtue of a similar quality in someone else. The word logizomai is sometimes translated reckon. In English, this is a little bit of an archaic term, but it has the same idea, to calculate, to be of the opinion, to regard something in a specific way. Uh, In Old English, it was an accounting term for uh, meaning to give an account uh, for items received. So it, make, it had that same idea, to credit something or to impute some, something uh, to someone. The verb, the idea to credit something means, at the, the last line, means to ascribe something, an achievement or a good quality uh, to someone else. So imputation, then, is the act of the justice of God whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. It is a judicial declaration. Everybody, we're flooded with these forensic shows today. It used to be 30 years ago you had uh, uh, Quincy M.E. Now you've got CSI and CSI New York and CSI Miami and NCIS and NCIS Los Angeles and all the Law and Order franchises and We're flooded with all these shows that are all about forensics. Forensic has to do with what goes on judicially in a courtroom and what can be presented for evidence and what can't be presented for evidence. So the word forensic is a a word that ought to be understood today by uh, anybody who watches TV, but it often isn't because as soon as you talk about theology, they they quit thinking. They have a little brain spasm and their brain locks up. But the time-honored word for talking about the Protestant view of justification by faith alone is that it's forensic justification, which means that God looks at you, the defendant, 
And because the defendant is covered by the righteousness of Christ, God the judge declares you, the defendant, not guilty. Doesn't make you not guilty, doesn't change you, but you're declared not guilty because of Christ paid the penalty. Now, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, Lewisbury Chafer divided imputations into two categories, real and judicial. And in the middle of that quote up there on the screen, he said that which is a real imputation is the reckoning to one of that which is antecedently his. Now, that's a little awkward for most people to get their understanding around. basically means that there's a, a compatibility between the, the, what is imputed and the person receiving the imputation. So that later he will say that the, the righteousness, the righteousness of our, our man's unrighteousness assigned to Christ who is righteous, that's, that can't be a real imputation because there's no compatibility between the two. So that would have to be a judicial a judicial imputation. So the real imputation, there's a compatibility between the two, such as the imputation of eternal life to the regenerate believer. See, there's a something there that is compatible between the two. That which is real is the reckoning to one of that which is antecedently his, while judicial imputation is the reckoning to one of that which is not antecedently his. So when we read in Scripture that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that's a judicial imputation. Now, this kind of thinking is not common today in theology, but it was common in generations past because they're trying to think clearly and precisely about what is said in God's Word. So we have four real imputations. Adam's original sin is imputed to our sin nature. See, there's a compatibility between the two. Eternal life is imputed to the human spirit. Blessings in time are imputed to the righteousness of God in us. And blessings in eternity are imputed to the resurrected believer because he has the righteousness of God. Uh, Judicial imputations, which is really what we're focused on in Romans 4, has to do with the imputation of our personal sins to Christ on the cross so that he is judicially judged. He does not become a sinner on the cross. He is declared by the justice of God to be a sinner and to bear the penalty of our sin, but he doesn't become a sinner. Understanding that is essential to understanding what happens to us. Jesus never becomes a sinner. That would that would impact his 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 deity and rip the fabric of the universe. But he's declared a sinner and he bears the penalty for our sins. So that when the next aspect occurs that his perfect righteousness is given to the believer, then we understand that we're not made as perfect either. We're still a sinner. We're just judicially declared to be righteous. So going to the Old Testament on this. The Old Testament, and turn with me to Genesis 15.6. This is such a crucial issue, and I, I'm, I don't know if I'll get it all done tonight. I know I won't. It's already 8.30. 
but I'm going to hit it, and I'll come back and get into a little more detail next week. Every time I get any, have anybody who goes to seminary, takes any kind of Bible college courses, they always come back in, to this because they'll hear a couple of different views on this. It appears in Genesis 15, let me just read the context to you a little bit. After these things, this is the fourth chapter dealing with, with God's relationship to Abraham. He calls Abraham, Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and says to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a summary. This is a summary of of the Abrahamic covenant. But at this point, is Abraham saved? Yeah, he is. When you get to Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. I'm going to give you a son that's going to come through you. And and then after he says those promises in the first five verses, then verse 6 says, and he believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, accounted it to him for righteousness. So it sounds like this is when he believes the Lord, but it's not. This is really a parenthetical verse reminding the reader that Abraham had already believed in the Lord. He's not believing him at this point, and this is when he's getting righteousness. It's referring to something that happened before Genesis 12. Now, next time we'll come back and get into the details of that because it's, a, it's really fascinating. And I've, every time I go to this, I get the opportunity to go through and read a lot more material um, than I've studied in the past on this, and I was impressed this time with the fact that a large number of commentaries make it clear that what I just said is the correct, correct view based on the grammar of the passage. So we'll look at that next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening and to uh, come to a better understanding of our justification and that justification by faith is the pattern from the time of Adam all the way through to the end of history. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. In Christ's name, amen.